Welcome back to show two of Arts About Light, Summertime 2018. And welcome back, Will. Welcome back to you, Swanee. About now, John Baird would normally say something about this being a show about art or a work of art or something like that. Yes, but we can't make that guarantee. Not on summertime light. But a big thank you to our already growing band of fans. Brendan, our Okanui wearing station manager, has received a number of cheery calls complimenting us on a job well done. However, there is a dark side to radio fame. There is a dark side indeed. And we have received what can only be described as a crank letter. Very disappointing. We don't get many letters on this show, and then you do, and it's a crank one. If we have time, we might even read that out to you, and news at home can be the judge. Now, the Hayricks of Hastings, Will, we did that story about the lost McCubbin last week. We did, very interesting. Has also uh, gained a response. Yes, caused quite a stir, and uh, just to GR of Tukgarook, yes, you can actually have Hayricks. Now, Tani Podcasters out there in Saskatchewan, and her answer to our inference was an emphatic no, no, no. What do you read into that? I don't know. No, we were wrong, or... Or, uh, or no, no he, 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 Justin Trudeau won't have me? Mm, or, we don't know. Yes, more information, please, Tani. Let's not forget to thank our major sponsors of Arts About Light Summertime, the Kunming Marine Safety and Fireworks Company of Bangholm. Hi to uh, manager Kelvin Chang and his trusty team down there at Factory 18. Yes, his passionate team. I think he likes to describe them as. They are passionate. Now, what is on the show this week, Will? Good question. <laughs> well... Remember, we're going to take that little ferry ride along the Sorrento coast there. We are. We're going to go on a ferry ride. Yes. And look at... Uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, correct. possibly. We're going to have a coast. peek in the backyards of the rich and famous. Mm, the champagne lifestyle. We're going to take a look at one of our favourite people, the comic genius Jacques Dati. And I guess, because you fried the microfiche, that we'll have to borrow a book from the Mornington Library for our archive section. Archives. I think we pretty much fried it together, I might add. But yes, the archive section, we'll have to borrow a book. Or the trusty Mornington Peninsula News, the newspaper. Oh, Friends of the Station, of course. Friends of the Station. And their motto being, we only print the truth. We only print the truth. If it's in the paper, we know it's true. Fantastic. And a big thanks to Steve Myers. Kudos there, Steve, of Soul to Soul, for telling Elise that the um, microfish machine blew up because of a conflagration of psychic plasma. Nice cover, Steve. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Now, if we need to do any further research, I, I'm going to suggest we go to Wikipedia. What do you think of that? Wikipedia? It's a bit dodgy, I reckon. Do you know anything about Wikipedia Sports? No. Wikipedia Sports, yeah, that's a online amusement where you can actually go to Wikipedia to any of the entries that you find, and you can edit them yourself, you know. You can add in facts, you can take things out. I did not know that. Can I give Elvis a club foot? You can give him a club foot. You can give him a membership of the Shriners. Wow. It's up to you. You can... It needs to be... I think it's confirmed or uh, there's a backup needed, but you can make 
any entry you want. You can alter all the entries that you find. It's quite yeah, fun. I've seen that citation needed, but uh, it, it fits with the, the times, doesn't it? The malleable truth. Malleable truth. Yep. truth, it is the times, and yep. uh, for that reason I think we'll try and steer clear of Wikipedia if we can on this show. And let's always fall back on the truth of music. Why don't we have a little song to kick us off? And, and, and stay tuned for Jacques Tati. Last week we attended an end of year bash at Brendan the Station Manager's uh, Poolside Barley Shack, didn't we, Will? That was great fun, great yeah. fun. It's good. He has a video night from every now and again, and, and, and last week we saw The Magnificent Tati. It's a great documentary, and enjoyed that thoroughly. Yeah, it traces his uh, rise from the Parisian music halls right up to his Oscar-winning films, and it deals, of course, with that with the end game, that beautiful film Playtime that you know, you know a little bit about, don't you? I do, but before I get onto that, I thought I might mention the prawns and the Thousand Island dressing provided and by... Mine host, Brendan, and his lovely and wife. His lovely wife. Thank you very much for that. Yes, Playtime. That was Tati's ultimate film. It was his magnum opus, but it was his downfall as well, wasn't mm. it? And we'll get to that a little later. I mentioned that uh, he was in the Parisian music halls, but before he was there, he really started to develop his comedic style in the changing rooms of his rugby club, didn't he? He did. He played uh, semi-professional rugby union. Yes, with, with the Racing Club de France. Racing Club de France, a Fun nice mixture of English and French. And it's a funny name for a rugby club, I might add. It is. It's a little odd. But what he'd do in the dressing rooms is reenact all the power plays that his mates had just done out in the field, much to their delight and amusement. And he pretty much took that act into the cabarets of Paris, pre-war Paris, and he called it his impression sportive. He did. He was a mime and loved watching mimes and actually studied them. I don't know if he trained professionally as a mime. I don't think he did. I think he was self-taught. I definitely read he was self-taught. You know, he was a picture framer with his grandfather before he did any of that. Yeah, and he came from a very comfortable middle-class life, but he turned his back on that and became the star act at the... Now, how do you say this, Will? The Theatre Michel? How do you pronounce that? I think it's Théâtre Michel. Is it really? Something like that. Michel. Michel. Anyway, I looked this place up on the internet and it's still around today. Have you been? I haven't been there, but oh. it's like Paris and many of the great cities, the, the traditional places remain today. Correct. Its little strapline is Le Cran de la Comédie, comédie which is the setting of the comedy. The setting of the comedy or the place where comedy originated, probably literally. Anyway, he started to make short films in the late 30s, one of, one, one of which was Oscar, Champion du Tennis. I never saw that film. No, but it gives you a little little lead into Monsieur Hulot's holiday, doesn't it, when he played that game of tennis? Oh, he developed that great tennis serving style where he looked like Donald Trump shaking hands with somebody backwards and forwards yeah. furiously and then before he tossed the ball and then plonked it over the net. Kind of, I'm doing it now. It's kind of a wind-up. Very funny. It became a trademark move. Yeah. And we, we just mentioned there Monsieur Hulot. And, of course, that was his trademark character with the raincoat, the umbrella and and, and the pipe, yeah? Pipe. And he had a funny little uh, hat. What would, how would you describe? Like a bucket hat. 
sort of a bit like, oh, he did too. He did. Yeah. Uh, he developed that personality, that character, Ulo, and for one movie, and of course the directors wanted him to move on, and he didn't want to. He held on to that for a series of movies because that was the success. Yeah, let's spend a little time describing Ulo. Sort of a hapless fellow, a bit gauche, a bit sort of not very sophisticated, just... He was always well-intentioned. He was a man who was wandering through modern life and continued to be confounded by everything about it. Sort of confounded by convention, wasn't he? The, the convention of the day, mm. the 50s and 60s, when they had the first automatic devices and things mm. like that. He, he struggled with that. He was quietly subversive in a way, all that sort of middle, those middle-class sensibilities and... And I can't even think of the word, but, you know, what they used to do. He was not impressed by showy uh, displays of wealth or sophistication. He was a simple man with his overcoat, his hat and his pipe and content with a quiet life. But he got thrown into much busier situations. Yeah, and he started... This This was Hulot. Hulot. And Tati himself started to make some very major films. We saw the one on the documentary, Jus de Fate, The Big Day. That was the village um, mailman. That was pre-Hulot. Yeah. Uh, that character, he was the mailman. It was a fabulous black and white movie. Really yeah. sound effects only. There were words spoken, but very hard to distinguish what they were. And you get the sense that he was this mime artist with these strange sound effects sort of put in later, isn't it? A yeah. sound stage. Yeah. They really, he, he, he perfected the sound stage. The, the Foley work. The Foley work where they had the movie projecting on a huge screen and all of the sound technicians watching intently, ready for their move. Mm. So we get on to Monsieur Ulu's holiday, and the scene I remember most, you're talking about his haplessness, his sort of gaucheness. He's, he's been invited into this large house, and he's alone in the library, and he's got his hands behind his back, and he's inspecting everything, as every sort of intellectual sort of middle-class fellow does, and he puts his foot on a rug. I think, I think he puts his umbrella, his, uh, umbrella onto this... What is it? It's a, it's a fox skin that's on the floor. Fantastic. In that style with the head and everything. And when he moves on, of course, it comes with him and gives him a terrible fright. Fantastic. And he's trying to shake it free from his umbrella. And then he went on to... He, he, the same character went on to, to Mon Uncle, which... Mon Uncle was a classic where he was visiting his sister who was mm -hmm. married to a highly successful industrialist, I think, amongst his other sources of wealth. He had a garden hose factory, and, of course, the, the, the sister was trying to bring her brother up in the world and raise his standards and wanted him to get a job with her husband. Well, the mere mention of a garden hose, it, it invites mirth, doesn't it? Well, the movie is great because they it, there are scenes of him in the factory with the hoses coming out, and he's only got to push the wrong switch and a garden hose comes out the end looking like a string of sausages. Some of the sound effects were, were fabulous. And there was another character in that film, the little boy. What was his name? Well, that was his nephew. I can't remember. Was it Gerard? Something like that. Something like that. And, of course, his parents, Ulo's sister and her industrialist husband, really didn't want him to have too much to do with Ulo because they disapproved of him. 
But of course, naturally, that's what happens in a good plot. They form a very good relationship and the, he, the little boy identifies far more with his uncle than with his own father. Any serious middle-class parents. Now, the big film, and we don't have much time to talk about it, but was, was Playtime. Playtime was his... The film he did, after he found success, he won an Academy Award and he finally found financial success, social acceptance. He was awarded by his peers. Fated in Hollywood. Fated in Hollywood. And uh, interestingly, when he was asked who he'd like to meet most in Hollywood after he got his Academy Award, he chose to meet with Stan Laurel from Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton, both old men, but who had worked in silent movies, obviously heroes of his... But Playtime was his greatest ever movie, and it was also his downfall. Yes, the greatest strength being his greatest uh, weakness. He built a whole town outside Paris called Tartiville. Tartiville, it was a huge sound, uh, sound, uh, uh, film studio, film set, whatever you call them, a film lot, I think they call them. All the buildings, the roads, everything, he built the whole thing. You know, the movie took nine years to make. He funded it himself. He borrowed money from his parents. And his sister. From his sister, yep. from his friends, from all kinds of people. When, whenever the bank said, we need the money back, he borrowed more money to complete this movie, which was his opus. And it was the most expensive film in French history in 1967. Nine years to make. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't popular. It, it wasn't a box office success. How would you describe it? It was a very quiet... It was a beautiful movie. It was about a confounded, confused, simple man wandering through a life full of uh, technical marvels that were way beyond his understanding. It was like a symphony of sound and colour and movement, and it was seen through Ulo's eyes. There was much more view of what was going on than there was of Ulo himself. It's a bit like us. We're a bit confounded by modern life, aren't we, Will? Yeah. But look, highly recommended uh, any of the Jacques Tati movies. Absolutely. Particularly in summertime, because a lot of them are about summertime holidays in France back in the 50s and early 60s. Will, the hilarity and sedate joy of Monsieur Hulot's holiday puts us in mind of how much fun you could be having this summer when you and 17 friends or family book a secluded beachside cabana at the Righty-Ho Caravan Park and Convention Centre in the Rye Industrial Estate. The estate is situated a mere 10 minutes by air-conditioned shuttle bus to the glistening waters of the bay. Be sure to mention Arts About Light Summertime to mine hosts Ken and Jan for a 10% discount for 10 or more guests. And don't forget to ask about live towel swapping. It's surprisingly fun. Yes, Brendan, so don't pull that sheet down off the clothesline. We'll be back for, to revisit that fabulous documentary, which was called The Magnificent Tartine. The Magnificent Tartine. Does that music sound familiar to you, Will? It does indeed. Of course, it's the theme song 
to the fabulous 80s TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. With Robin Leach. Yeah, who can forget all those kind of sweeping helicopter swirl shots and they'd zoom in on some scantily clad beauty on the back of a 400,000 foot yacht. Uh, pretty wild, pretty new for its time, a precursor of all those kind of trashy, variety, what do you call them, reality shows? Vulgarity. But what about the guy's accent? What was that? He was English, and I don't know if it's an East Ender accent or a Cockney accent, but it was quite a strong accent. Sort it? of an East Ender accent that got on a train and tried to make its way to Wimbledon or something. It was it? jarring. It was like sort of, and it's on to Monte Carlo. Champagne, anyone? Oh, you do that so well. He called Liz, uh, Elizabeth Taylor La Liz. That adds just that little bit of class, yeah. as he would have called it. It's a classy name for someone to add a little bit of French. And he'd often try to wedge into every episode champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Oh, just taking me back. Of course, it was a show that was just entirely dedicated to vulgarity, uh, the nouveau riche in America, very rich people with new money. They were kind of an odd bunch of people, though, that he yeah, chose. conspicuous, ostentatious wealth. Showy, flamboyant wealth. The sort of people we'd call cashed-up bogans these days. The Cubs. And who were the... Some, I, I remember Hulk Hogan. I remember Sylvester Stallone was featured once. Yes, and uh, an arms dealer, Adnan Khashoggi, who was a well-known arms dealer, very, very wealthy billionaire man, made his money from illegal sales of armaments. Permission to come aboard, Adnan. <laughs> he'd be like that, wouldn't he? He would have been. Yeah. And he'd jump onto the yacht. Now, Caviar dreams. Hulk Hogan, he was a, bit of, he was a wrestler, wasn't he? He was a professional wrestler. He's uh, very large and really odd. He had an odd dyed blonde moustache and dyed blonde hair. And enormous pecs. And he always wore a bandana, I suspect, yeah. because his hair was a bit thinning and he didn't want anyone to know. He couldn't wear a wig in the wrestling ring because someone might have taken it off and made a fool of him. Yes. But he also had orange skin. He was dyed a deep brown orange colour from head to foot. Yeah, he's not unlike the current president of the United States, is he? Potus. In, in appearance. Well, in size as well. They're both about six foot three. They could almost be brothers. Well, I reckon they probably were separated at birth. One had nutritious breakfasts and, and exercised regularly, and the other did the complete opposite. Zero exercise. Of course, the current president swears by the four basic food groups only. And what are those? So that's vegetables, meat, is what is it? What no, 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 you're talking fast food here. The four basic food groups are pizza, hamburgers, fried chicken, chicken. and the other one. Yeah. I think it must be malted milks or... Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's Diet Coke. Of course. Of course, the uh, current president of the United States, Donald Trump, featured in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I think he was on four complete episodes. Doesn't surprise me at all. We're not short of that kind of person here on our very own peninsula, are we, Will? We're not really. There's an interesting... It's always been that way along the clifftop from Sorrento to Porty. Well, even Martha Cove springs to mind. It does. I mean, last New Year's Eve, just these few days ago, wow. Wow, Martha Cove lights up like the bombing of Baghdad on New Year's Eve. It's... I don't know where they get their fireworks, but can you please let me know? It starts at uh, about nine o'clock. And it runs all the way through till about two in the morning. Fantastic. Nothing to do with New Year's Eve. It's just 
the bombing of Baghdad. Yeah, so you mentioned the clifftop mansions, our very own Cote d'Azur, you might say. You know a little bit about local real estate, Will. Perhaps you could take us on a sort of an imaginary chartered voyage of this golden coast from Sorrento to Portsea. That's not a bad idea. So rather than going on the, the voyage, but let's imagine we're on the Sorrento Queenscliff Ferry. Yeah, like I said, rather than have a chartered voyage on the ferry with about 120 other people, let's just imagine we're there. Well, we look, as we leave Sorrento, we can look across, we'll see lots of large houses on the cliff. Yes, I can see them in my mind's eye. There's a lot of fast money that's been made, and the old houses have been knocked down several times and rebuilt bigger and bigger and bigger. Usually involving more rectangles and more glass. Mmm, less garden, more house. Yeah, you call them TV, television houses, don't oh, you? Oh, well, they're even got bigger than the TV set houses. They're, some mm. of them are monstrous. We're talking... Anything from 100 to 200 square houses in places. All right, if I was to look up at the, the cliff face now, what might I be looking at? What grand old mansion might have survived this carnage? Probably the grandest of them all is Eluca, which mm -hmm. was, uh, is like a Spanish-style building on a vast estate overlooking one of the little beaches, Point King Beach. And what's a sort of a Spanish Santa Fe beauty doing in Sorrento? Eluca was built by a, an American oil magnate, Harry Cornforth, who came to Australia and had a ton of money to spend, bought the, bought the land and then brought his own architect in from Santa Fe, I think it was. I wonder if they called him Corny. Well, they did. He, had, he built a jetty with a swimming bar at the end of it. And of course, uh, from there on, it was always referred to as Corny's Baths. Been various owners since then, of course. Did you ever have a shot? Did you ever jump into? Oh, we were in those. We, as kids, we used to jump into all those private baths and use them. Yeah, fantastic. Now the Fox Estate, which I'm imagining we can see about now, just up the other end of the beach, mm. the same beach. You were describing it more off air as a sort of a compound, weren't you? It is a uh, Lindsay Fox with Lynn Fox, of course. Yeah, there is a compound of his own very large house that he built, but I think they ended up buying virtually all the houses in that street and they're all owned by family members. So it is a compound. It's a very so, family-oriented affair at the Foxes. So more of an enclave, really, a nation within a nation. It is, yep. Any other significant well, houses we might see? They're significant. The, the Williams House, mm -hmm. which is where the old aquarium stood, of course, Lloyd Williams having won five Melbourne Cups, significant yes and, and also built the melbourne casino when he was with his first company hudson conway um, he has a house on the site of where the old sorrento aquarium used to be or his son does anyway i well remember the aquarium and you reckon there might be money in dry cleaning uh perhaps there is but i'm sorry will i'm gonna have to interrupt there because we've got a very important uh, message from our arts about sponsor sure so being on board this imaginary ferry puts us in mind of the importance we should all place on marine safety, don't you agree? It does indeed. Now, I might ask you, are your onboard flares up to date? Are they current, Will? I keep them current at great expense and trouble. And do they conform to the standards set down by the Shanghai Protocol? They do, I believe. <laughs> I'm very pleased to hear that. I'll follow that up.
But listeners, if not, you should consider visiting the Kunming Marine Safety and Fireworks Company website and ordering a full suite of Perpetual Flares slash Skydragon rockets. The Perpetual Flares have the advantage of not being printed with a date of manufacture, so you'll never again have to throw out a perfectly good emergency beacon. They are also a lot more fun on New Year's Eve, aren't they, Will? Oh, they certainly were in Martha Cove. Now, listeners might also remember we talked about an important summer boating release from Kunming, a real life-saving ear buster, the Jack Banner Number 18 Acoustic Safety Alert with patented waterproof wick. Do you remember what we say about that fantastic device, Will? I do indeed. After you. It's, it's not, not a flare. flare. It's, it's not, not a skyrocket. It's, it's not, not a, a toy. toy. Kelvin Chang and his passionate team of exchange students down at Kunming in Bangholm have stressed that the acoustic is definitely a measure of last resort. And while the Jack Banger number 18 comes with a metre-long, reusable plastic holder, this will do nothing to prevent a 50% loss of hearing. It's definitely a last resort. But if all else fails, the Jack Banger number 18 acoustic can be heard for 12 nautical miles. Imagine that. And what a comfort that will be if you're up to your backside in brine. The Jack Banger number 18 acoustic. It's, it's not a toy. Did you know that the Bendigo Community Bank branches support our local sporting clubs? Our sponsor, the Bendigo Community Bank branches in Rye, Dramana and now in Rosebud, are supporting the local community and putting the people back into banking. Hi, Pete again from the Mornington Telstra Business Centre. I'd like you to meet Scott. G'day. Sarah. Hello. And Beck. Hi. From our team. NBN is coming to the Mornington Peninsula, and we're here to help your business get the most out of it. These guys can answer your questions about NBN for business and can take care of the technical aspects. So drop by for a chat with any of the team at our Mornington Telstra Business Centre or call us now on 1300 My Business. That's 1300 692 874 to book an appointment or we can come to you. Home Designs Indoor Outdoor Living. Closing down sale. Top quality outdoor furniture at never to be repeated prices. Everything must go. Lounges, dining tables, chairs, umbrellas and occasional. Closing down sale. Everything must go before Christmas. Bring your truck, bring your trailer, bring your van. Home Designs Indoor Outdoor Furniture. 106 to 108 Frankston Dandenong Road, Dandenong South. Station sponsor. show we mentioned the lost cars of Bangholm Will. It's one of those stories you can choose to believe or just simply dismiss as poppycock. It kind of depends on what your view on parallel dimensions or multiverses is. Not my specialty. Sounds like Steve from Soul to Soul to me. Yeah, nice dig there. Look, I place it squarely in the old 
Peninsula Panther Basket. You know, the sightings the of... Sightings the, of the Black Panther. The so-called Black Panther. But I put it to you, firstly, where is Bangholm? Not so easy to answer, is it's it? It's not. It's very hard to say. In fact, I don't think anybody knows for sure where this place is. And if I could put the listeners into place, you might have seen a line of cars travelling alongside the southern end of Eastlink, just past Patterson Lakes. And it's on, they're on a road that seems to have no beginning or ending. The, the vehicles appear to be travelling nowhere. And the only clue, Will, any indication of where you are when you're passing these cars is you come across this mysterious building called the Bangholm Hall. The Bangholm Hall, yeah, I've yeah. seen that, and it runs right parallel with the freeway. Yeah, this little old wooden building. But when you turn, have you noticed when you turn back to look at it, it's gone. It's not really gone. there anymore. It's really spooky. It is a little bit spooky, but the cars keep going and going and going. Anyway, there's a little bit of science, call it what you will, to all this, because we did a bit of research, and there are a number of stories about the lost cars of Bangholm. Reports of these endless cars have come to the attention of the, get ready for this, the Psychic Engagement of Phenomenal Energy Institute, or PP Institute. And they're located in Berwick. They are Victoria. in Berwick. I know. Who would have thought? Can you imagine? They probably live in a little suburban street. You can imagine what they're... they're oh, no. They have a post office box, PP Institute. Yeah. It's the closest thing the eastern suburbs have to Ghostbusters, I reckon. But if I bring this picture up, you can see they look like a very determined bunch, don't they? Oh, they do. Yeah. Quite fierce. Yes. And PP is headed up by the very formidable Dr. Sylvia Gluck. Gluck or Gluck. Yeah. And look at the picture. What what in the hell is she holding there? Well, they've got infrared cameras, ectoplasmic yeah. detectors. Well, what's that thing she's holding out in front of her? It looks like two clothes, uh, what do you call them, wire coat hangers. Yeah, that's yeah. they have all that stuff. With spe special handles. Anyway, they do have the, they took all their infrared cameras and ectoplasmic detector things, but they reported back that they failed to pick up any paranormal activity at all. But they did note that over this 48-hour period where they were secreted in a sort of a wildlife hide, they reported that they saw the same cars passing over and over again past their observation point. Why am I not surprised? Yes. I mean, we've already always mentioned this as we've driven past, but some of the statistics here, Mitsubishi Magna, 146 passes, Red VE Commodore, 96 times, a Valiant Charger, 230 sightings, and a red MGB sports car, an astounding 648 times. And this is over what period of time? 48 hours. 48 hours. These cars, and using night vision, I'm just reading this here, using night vision binoculars, Dr. Gluck was able to ascertain that the driver of the top-down MG appeared to be dressed for a beach picnic with only a light silk shirt and a twin cockney cap protecting him from the freezing may weather and this was at 2 a.m it is this is spooky yeah i used to know a charles gluck and i wonder if they're related but anyway dr gluck fired a starter's pistol to attract the driver's attention apparently she's had success in the past startling ghosts with this police registered firearm and he appeared not to notice a noise loud enough to wake the dead and just kept on driving maybe she should try the acoustic Number eighteen, man, that would that would wake the entire uh, population of hell, I reckon. Mm. 
Anyway, she did report that the man's face was creased in frustration and he seemed to be desperately searching for something up ahead, like a landmark or a turn-off perhaps. Mm, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's food for thought. <laughs> it certainly, certainly is. But this is not the only thing. The PP the Institute have their one story. But the Frankston leader, August 21, 2012, reported people pulling to the side of Eastlink and calling through the cyclone fencing, fencing sorry, to a heavily pregnant woman struggling with a flat tyre. She appeared to not notice their offers to call the RACV before re-entering her still jacked up vehicle, a Mitsubishi Magna, oh. and speeding off on a miraculously re-inflated tyre. That is just... Yeah, what do you... What do you make of that? Well, I've got a shiver up my spine, yeah. I have to say. And she, too, appeared to be desperate to reach some point up ahead. Mm, yeah. Well, on that story, which is here, I've cut it out of that paper, the police were alerted but dismissed the calls because, one, nobody could adequately describe the location of the breakdown, and two, the cops are certain, are you ready? They're certain that no such road exists. But we've seen it. I know, and go figure. Sees it I know that. The freeway. Anyway, listeners at this point might, might be saying, what's that got to do with art? Well, the reason we're on to all this research is because we were following up the Lost McCubbin story. We were indeed. We were travelling, trying to find a place where McCubbin actually exactly. met Arthur Streeton, the two... For the first time, they met up, um, they rendezvoused, in fact, outside this mysterious Bangholm Hall in 1894 before heading on to the peninsula for some uh, plein air painting. Well, Streeton was a regular on the peninsula, and I think you told me earlier that Charles McCubbin also was. Absolutely. There's a very met. There's a very good painting of his, the Red Cliffs. Oh, no, it's not called the Red Cliffs of Mornington, but it's on those those famous Red Cliffs of Mornington. But that hall, the picture of that, a picture of that hall turned up in a later Streeton, Streeton painting entitled Summers. Now, why, why he gifted that tiny beach community... A, the Banghome Hall. The Banghome Hall, which he renamed the Mechanics Institute, is anyone's guess because it never existed there and it never will. Summers to this very day has only got a population of about what? I don't know. Who knows? A Not few very hundred, many. maybe. Anyway, uh, listeners, we couldn't resist checking all this out for ourselves. And it is really weird, isn't it, Will? It is because the hall is there. It's an old weatherboard building. Oh, we've, can, we've seen the hall see many times, but we tried to get onto this mysterious yeah. road. And you've got to sort of, you drive uh, along Thompson Road, ready to go inbound on the freeway. And this little turn-off, there's nothing there. We saw it just says golf club. Golf club, that's right. You know, the promise of recreation. But you can't actually get in there onto well, that road. We, that, we both said turn left, right, now here, here, that sort of thing. But somehow we just ended up at the much wider and bigger and well-signed freeway entrance. Off we were to Melbourne. We had to sneak across the median strip. Came back, did it again. Same thing happened. And I jacked up after. I didn't want to do it the third time. I was a bit no, spooky. I didn't want to do it the second time. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, travelling on the freeway, as we did, we continued on and we, we're still looking left. For the, following correct. this road that yep. apparently doesn't exist, and somewhere are. near the other end is that hotel, the freeway hotel that people will have seen. It's like a miniature hotel about oh, yeah, that one. four or five storeys tall. It's, it's miniaturised and it's, you can't get in there, you can't get out of there. It's lit up at night. 
You reckon it's got... It's it's kind of at the end of where we reckon that road was. It's a bit like that song, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. So there you go. It's a fair income, real-life Peninsula ghost story, and you can make it of it what you will. I mean, I remember the uh, guest tennis commentator, John Newcomb, at the 1981 Australian opening on a very tricky line call. He said, use at home, be the judge. <laughs> I love it. Nuke. Go yeah. nuke. I wonder if he's ever been down to the uh, that hotel in Bangholm or the northern end of Bangholm. It just goes to show you don't need sort of fog and eerie nights and moonlight and wolves howling to get a real-life ghost story happening. You don't. It's right here on the peninsula. Yep. And you've heard it directly from your two faithful... What are we, correspondents? No, we're on the radio, aren't we? Yeah, we're sort of cub reporters at best. But anyway, so really... Go and have a look for yourself. Go to that freeway entrance. I wouldn't dare go down that road if you ever got onto it because you've got to spare a thought for those poor lost souls, mm, don't you? You do. I mean, they took one wrong turn in life, perhaps, and now they've been condemned to some cruel bitumen treadmill forever. Now, Will, you've insisted we do a story on Australia's P.T. Barnum. Who might that be? Well, our own P.T. Barnum was a fellow called George Coppin. Yes. Famous in Sorrento, of all places. Yes, he was a great promoter of Sorrento, and he wanted it to be known as the watering hole for the wealthy. He was uh, quite an incredible fellow, and it, it, I don't call him the P.T. Barnum of uh, Australia for nothing. He was a an actor, he was a theatre producer, impresario. impresario, philanthropist, he was a banker at one stage, he was a property developer. He built most he many, politician. He built many of those landmarks like the Continental Hotel. The Continental Hotel, which we often just refer to as the Conti. Yes. Uh, he built that. And he was a man of power and great influence. And I read, this is a beautiful quote, that he brokered an understanding among councillors that Sorrento and Portsea received the lion's share of Shire resources. Oh, don't you just love that, the wording of it? Yeah, nothing much changes, does it? It doesn't change, I don't think. He went from strength to strength. He he, he was be behind all the Bay Steamer business, wasn't he? He was. He set up, um, because he owned the... He built the Ocean Amphitheatre mm -hmm. Tea House at the back beach of Sorrento. Mm -hmm. He owned the ferry, the Bay Steamer Ferry Company, that where the, the boats came down from Port Melbourne to Sorrento. He then built a steam train. It's a tramway. Like a tramway. It was yeah. a steam engine on a tramway to take his passengers from his ferries through Sorrento on a guided tour. His town. His town to the amphitheatre at the back to have tea and scones at his tea house and then return them back to the ferry in time to get them back to Melbourne. So he, I mean, it's all very important because we, we have had chat with showman, a chat with a showman before. It's all very, it's very important to hold the penny, isn't it? All the way. He had all the bases covered. Fantastic. He really was an entrepreneur. And some of those very famous ships, the Ozone, the Hygieia, how do you pronounce that one, Will? I think that's the Awaroa. Yes. I don't, I don't recall that one. The Reliance and the very famous Waruna. Yeah, Waruna, Ozone and Hygieia were large paddle steamers that were brought out from Scotland. They were substantial ships. That sort of thing. That sort of thing, yeah. yeah. And they used to ply the waters of the bay uh, regularly and people would commute on them. Are there any traces of this tramway? I've never seen... 
there's really only the signs telling people where it was and there's a little shed next to a building one of the houses down near the Sorrento Pier, which is was the maintenance shed for the steam engine. Well, let this be a lesson to all you people with grandiose plans. It all it all amounts to nothing in the end, does it? Yeah. Do you know happen to know who liquidated the tramway when well, it finally went? Well, I think it went broke in 1913. Well, I think yeah, probably after Coppin died. I think it was one of his pals, Councillor Isaac Bensalem. That's correct. He's an interesting fellow. I'm sure he was part of this brokered understanding because there's a certain sort of shadow on his career. There is an understanding, definitely has uh, inverted commas at yes. the end. Quotes broad, broad reach. He built the Sorrento Athenaeum, which still stands today as the Sorrento Cinema. Many of you would have taken it. was a music hall when he built it. Yep. No doubt your mate Coffin performed on that stage. I know that he did. He was a, 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 a booming-voiced actor. He was a large man. Corpulent, I think you'd call it. Stentorian voice. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, he built that hall. He was a local councillor, as I said. But then as I researched further and further, I got into this murky sort of these court records of this conspiracy case. Now, I really, quite honestly, can't make head nor tail of some of this ancient legal speak, and I don't think the sentences come together that well. But from what I can gather, Bensalem paid a couple of private dicks to offer witness. Goodness me, yeah. this sounds like underbelly. Yeah, I, d I don't know the original circumstances that led him to this desperate move, but there was some young fellow, he was only a young bloke, he was witness to some wrongdoing, and rather than take cop it, old Bensalem was going to... God, and we maybe witnessed him passing a bag of cash, or receiving a bag of cash. Probably. Well, it didn't. The, 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 it was all unravelled and he was arrested and he was placed on a bond of £500 on his own recognizance. But the strangest thing about this case is one of the detectives that uh, Bensalem paid, this McLaughlin, he stood up in court and he told the judge he couldn't recall anything because after he was allowed bail, he took chloral of hydrate. Chloral of hydrate? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's toothpaste, or the main ingredient of toothpaste, isn't it? Well, it says he took chloral of hydrate and lost his senses. Would that happen? Well, I suppose so. I've never uh, scoffed down a tube of toothpaste. Yeah, well, not possible. That is very strange. Any records of that case other than that? Well, he said he did, know, know, did not know what he was doing and had no intention of absconding as alleged. So make of it what you will, people, but these things never really change through the, through the years. What do you I've, think? I've got the, a copy of the uh, Peninsula News here, Friends of the Station. Big headline, Shire boss on Fox Party Cruise. It turns out that the CEO of the Peninsula Shire very recently attended Lindsay Fox's 80th birthday party in a Mediterranean cruise. Some things never change. Now it's time for... On This Day... Well, nothing of note actually happened on this day. Apparently not. But we do have, as promised, our letters. Will, oh, uh, yes. Do you, want to, do you want to kick off? Which one have you no, got? No, no, what have you got there? I've got, I've got here one that's responding to the uh, ad about the acoustic, the, oh, you yeah. know, the yeah. marine device. I heard your show last week in which you discussed a new marine safety device called the acoustic. I would like to order three dozen, please. 
God. I've included my address and phone number and hope to hear back before New Year. Oh, oh that's unfortunate. Oh, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Okay. Because it's already happened. Yeah, that was from Conmovitis at Martha Cove, and that makes sense. I mean, there are more, you know, Nouveau Reeks and Roy Poloys down there setting off fireworks. Oh, of course. All of China combined. All making a big bang. Yeah, sorry, we missed you there. All right, what have you got there, Will? Oh, let's see. We've got letters and pigeonholy. Oh, this is a text, actually. I think this might be the first text we've ever received at the right, Arts okay. About show. Yes. It's from Colin Kelsey in Newport. Can someone call me back on this number? I have a painting in the shed, which I think is by McGovern. Last week, you said these might be valuable. Thank you. Oh, dear, dear. It's McCubbin, old chap. Charles McCubbin. Yeah. Uh, good luck with your McGovern. Never right? heard of a McGovern. Yeah, no, he's obviously got bad hearing. We but did a whole show on Charles McGovern. I don't know what you're doing listening to an art show, mate. Yeah. You don't know the difference. Yeah. Move on. Well, anyway, remember we mentioned that crank letter. Here it is. You made light of many subjects in your so-called art show last week. The Shriners Association of Australasia is a long-established and well-respected charitable organisation and should not be held up to ridicule with your flippant remarks. You may just be filling in over summer, but please show some respect. Not sure what your qualifications are, but I would suggest if you cannot stick to art, then you should stick to your day jobs. Disgruntled lister, listener, Ian Hooper, Mount Martha. Well, boo-hoo, Ian. Get your own show. We're in unpaid positions here, and might we remind you we're in the shack between the men's shed and the bloody toilet. And I've got to say, we've run out of time. So yeah. we're going to see you all later. Thanks for listening. You're welcome. See you again next week, Swan. See ya.